0: You're listening to Energy 360 from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm Sarah Ladislaw, your host for this week and Senior Vice President and Director of the Energy Program. Today we're talking with Tim Gould, Head of Division for the World Energy Outlook at the International Energy Agency. Welcome, Tim.
1: Thanks very much, Sarah. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having us on.
0: Yeah, no problem. And congratulations again on getting yet another World Energy Outlook released quite recently. I know it's always a giant task.
1: Well, thanks very much indeed. Yeah, we have the main launch of the World Energy Outlook uh, quite recently, but um, what we're trying to do is to spread those launches out over a longer period of time, so there's different bits coming into the public domain at different stages.
0: Well, I think that's a wise idea. We'll look forward to having you back to CSIS uh, probably in the new year. You know, in addition to the WIO, we wanted to have you on to the podcast today to talk about another study um, that you and your colleagues at the IEA have recently released uh, on the outlook for producer economies, which focuses on countries whose economies are heavily reliant on revenue from oil and gas production. Um, You you focus on six countries in particular, Iraq, Nigeria, Russia, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Venezuela, um, which is not only kind of a very diverse group, um, but also, you know, a group of countries that um, don't often, you know, get grouped together and talked about in quite the way that you guys have done it. I was just sort of curious, why, why now, right? Oil revenue dependence has been largely recognized for you know many years as a strategic vulnerability for a number of countries. Why did you decide to take on this particular study right now?
1: I think the answer has a lot to do with the way that the energy world is changing. I mean, you're completely right that pressure on different economies, including the ones you've mentioned and to diversify, reduce reliance on oil and gas has been around for for decades. Um, If you look back in history, this has really ebbed and flowed in the past according to different commodity cycles, Um, but the impetus for this piece of analysis was a sense that we may be entering a period of sustained pressure on development models that are very dependent upon hydrocarbons. And There are three. Big reasons for us to think that this time might be somewhat different, and the first of those is really linked to what's happening in, in the United States on the supply side, um, the shale revolution. You know, the year-on-year gains that you're seeing in oil production from the United States at the moment are, are quite remarkable. You know, and that means that a certain market share that some of these large oil and gas exporters might have seen as their own has been taken instead by the the United States. So if we look out to 2025, the United States is producing one in every five barrels of oil in that main scenario that we have, and one in four cubic meters of gas. Mm -hmm. So that means that has a big impact on markets, has a big impact on the way um, that revenue is flowing uh, around the world. And there's another two factors that we think are somewhat different compared with the past. Um, one the, it's all to do with the structural changes that you're seeing in oil consumption. Um, fuel economy standards are having an impact on oil demand, um, but the thing on people's minds is also fuel switching, uh, the prospect that more and more transport demand might be met in the future by um, fuels or technologies other than oil. Um, electric cars very much in people's minds. That's not yet. Having a huge impact on oil consumption by displacing oil, um, but depending on how you see that uh, electric mobility continuing in the future, um, it could have a much larger impact uh, as, you move, as you move ahead. And finally, there's a much broader range of issues around the global response to climate change, but also to um, air quality concerns in many large cities around the world, and that introduces an um, an aura of uncertainty over the way that policies will evolve and how fast um, energy transitions might proceed in the future. So for all those reasons we felt that now was a good moment to look at some of these pillars of global supply, how a changing energy scene, how changing energy dynamics um, might affect their prospects going forward.
0: And in doing your research um, for thinking about the drivers for the kinds of changes that these countries should make, um, which we'll get into in just a minute. Did you find that there was um, adequate appreciation of the headwinds that you're seeing that are the drivers for these kinds of reforms among those countries, or was was it fairly diverse in terms of the appreciation of those kinds of longer-term strategic risks among the different countries?
1: As you pointed out at the start, um, the countries that we're looking at in particular in this analysis are a very diverse group, and the reactions, the strategic responses from these countries have also been quite diverse as well. Um, some of them have formulated sort of long-term development strategies that reduce reliance on oil, um, particularly oil revenue, um, over the coming decades. You know, in other cases, those strategies are remaining. You know, in in very much a formative stage. So it it really depends which which country you're talking about. Mm. But I think a a common denominator is that, particularly after the fall in the oil price that started in in 2014, um, this issue has risen up the policy agenda. And there are many countries that are now thinking much more seriously about this than they might have done um, in the years prior to 2014.
0: So you point out in the report that the key to success for these countries is broadly, uh, diversification of their economy, which in many ways gets to policies that are outside the energy sector. Um, But you do identify six specific areas where the outlook for the energy sector is tied to the broader reform agenda. Can you share with us what those are?
1: Yes, certainly. Um, And I think it's important to, to start by saying that the reform agenda is, of course, much wider than energy. And in many ways, it's all about reducing the influence or the reliance on, on oil and gas uh, revenue for the economy as a whole. So there's a whole range of, of issues around the improvement in the business environment, conditions for private sector growth, you know, broadening the tax base and so on, um, which are very much part of this discussion. But they weren't, they weren't, they weren't the issues that we really focused on uh, in this analysis. Um, what we wanted to emphasize is that reform is not just a question of moving away from energy but it's about using a a well functioning or better functioning energy sector as a foundation for more diversified growth. And in that context, we we did look at different areas in which um, the energy sector um, could play a constructive role in in the overall reform process. The first, and this is often an early diversification option which many countries are, are looking at, and that's the possibility to get more value from hydrocarbons by investing further downstream. Um, for example, in in petrochemicals, this is already um, visible in many many producers um, in in Saudi Arabia, for example, that the, you know the huge industrial cities in Jubail and Yanbu, um, and that has a range of implications. What it means in 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 our outlook is that a large part of the growth in oil supply over the coming decades actually doesn't go for export, but it goes to feed either domestic refining or that domestic petrochemical sector. A second area that we looked at was about the role of natural gas. Um, In some countries, that has been very much a junior partner in this discussion, but in our view, it does have a larger significance for diversification, Um, in part because demand for natural gas is more robust than demand for oil in the scenarios that we look at. Um, But it's also because natural gas can be used to underpin an industrial strategy. In a way that oil cannot. Mm-hmm. Um, a third area relates to renewables, because there's a massive untapped potential for renewable energy in many of these economies. Um, if you just want to take the, um, the Middle East as an example, right now there's around 90 gigawatts of oil-based power generation capacity in the Middle East, and only around one gigawatt of solar, and that's in a region which has some of the highest potential for solar in in the world. Um, taking advantage of that potential also it would involve uh, another thing that we looked at in detail and that's phasing out the subsidies that encourage uh, wasteful consumption of, of fossil fuels because if, you, if those subsidies remain in place, it becomes difficult to push new energy into the system and it becomes difficult for people to use energy more efficiently, so that question of pricing reform, subsidies, very much part of the discussion. Um, I should probably mention that even without subsidies, many of these economies would still have a comparative advantage in energy. They've got low production costs, and that could translate into a low, a stable, low domestic price, um, especially for natural gas and for electricity. Uh, so we're not talking about you know giving up the advantage that comes from uh, a large resource base. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, another area that we looked at, and it's somewhat counterintuitive, but it's all about ensuring that you continue to invest sufficiently in the upstream. Um, I think Venezuela is a good example about uh, showing that the collapse in upstream spending has had uh, uh, effects well beyond the energy sector and it's accelerated that downward spiral for the economy as a whole. So keeping the Revenues that can support div- domestic development is, is very important. And finally, uh, the last area that we looked at was about energy technology development. And many of these uh, countries do have some leading expertise in a range of energy technologies. Um, Saudi Arabia, for example, um, is—I mean—they have pilot programs in using CO2 for enhanced oil recovery. Um, Kuwait, likewise, Oman is using solar thermal as a way to, um, to enhance oil recovery as well. Um, they have the potential to play a very constructive role uh, for technologies like carbon capture utilization and storage, um, so there's a potential intersections there also when you think about the role of hydrogen in the future of the energy system. So all of these areas together um, for us constituted an agenda for, for change. Um, in the energy sector and that could position countries, a variety of countries, better for the future.
0: Um, So Tim, one of the things that you all took a close look at in the report was the demographic pressures in in many of these countries, which is certainly uh, in the front of the minds of a lot of the public policy planners and uh, and government officials in, in many of these countries. How did you, you know, think that those uh, demographic trends fed into some of the imperatives that these uh, that these folks are facing?
1: The aim of the analysis in general was to sort of stress test these hydrocarbon-dependent economies against different scenarios for the future. And and clearly, the big variables there are the oil price and the uh, oil demand. Um, but there's one other very important variable that you mentioned, and that's the, the population issue. Um, it's not an issue for the UAE, um, it's a very different issue in Russia, where in fact you have um, you know, a, a shortage of new people entering the, uh, the workforce. Um, but in Saudi Arabia, in Iraq, in Nigeria, um, there's an imperative to try and create new employment for a, a very young population, um, so 60% of the uh, population of Saudi Arabia um, is under 30. and the in a sense, the traditional model of recycling oil revenue directly into jobs, I mean, we're really reaching the end of the road for that model, and that's one of the issues that really creates an additional impetus, um, and that what's marked the future as being quite different from the past when you, when you think about the pressures that are on some of these economies. Mm-hmm.
0: And what are some of the things that you suggest are are to be done about um, meeting some of those job imperatives? I mean, does the report get specific enough to talk about the the way in which to create jobs and ease those pressures? Or is it really um, just, again, one of the drivers for the economic diversification that you talk about? Yeah, I think it, it,
1: it speaks to the, the, the broader agenda for economic diversification. Um, we did look at a few of the examples from history about you know, where has there been successful diversification? Um, we looked in particular at Indonesia, Mexico, and in both cases, growth in the non-oil economy has really, it really hasn't been achieved by the state recycling oil revenues. Um, it's been much more about export-oriented manufacturing, often based on outsourcing by major international companies, and then you get start to develop networks of domestically owned or medium-sized suppliers. So that's been the route that has worked in the past. And and I think the past is, in this sense, is probably a good guide to what might work in the future as well.
0: One of the things I liked about the categories of action that you picked out and used in the study um, was that, on the one hand, they their policies and objectives that you recommend for countries to be able to be more resilient and to be more um, uh, sort of... uh, Do better in the face of the challenges and the headwinds that you've pointed out uh, in terms of the performance of their economy broadly, but they're also about being more competitive. And I, what's interesting to me is when you look at most of the IEA uh, scenarios, is that you know the share for oil and gas, while gas is growing and oil is, depending on the scenario. Uh, either growing more slowly or declining over a period of time it's a much more competitive environment for these countries so they the additional driver is not just to insulate their economy from uh, uh, price volatility and some of the pressures that you talked about but it's also to try and be more competitive is that correct
1: yeah that's absolutely right it's about you know ensuring that you have a competitive basis in the energy sector for a more um, competitive Economy as a whole, and um, because one of the pitfalls that we uh, that we look at in the analysis is the fact that these these export revenues, in particular, have allowed many of these economies to grow off along a fairly unproductive pathway. Yeah. So if you examine how labour productivity has um, evolved over the last decades in a range of countries in the Middle East and North Africa, um, What you find is that those without large hydro open resources have quite a respectable record of of improvements in labour productivity. Mm -hmm. Those with oil and gas have lagged far behind. Um, There are multiple factors in play there, but one of them is the tendency to use those revenues just to add people and projects to the public payroll. Mm -hmm. And that's been a way of managing a variety of social and economic pressures. Mm -hmm. Um, Take Iraq, for example. The, The overall number of public sector employees is Iraq. In Iraq has been rising very fast, and yeah. um, it's now more than than three million, and mm-hmm. um, that's more than thirty percent of the workforce. Um, so that's a, that's an example of the sorts of um, distortions in a way that you can introduce into an economy from having this availability of, of, of oil and gas export revenue.
0: Sure. Well, you know, one of the things I, that you also do uh, quite frequently in in various studies and IEA analysis is gauge how well uh, different countries or actors are responding relative to a challenge. Did you take a look at that in this study? And, and if so, um, how are some of these six countries acting and and um, both in their rhetoric and their actual reform efforts relative to the challenge that you see?
1: Well, I think there's a wide variety there. I mean, clearly at one end of the spectrum, uh, you've got Venezuela, um, which has, which is facing very severe difficulties now um, across pretty much every indicator that you can uh, that you can imagine, um, because in a sense you've overcommitted on the basis of uh, the expectation of, of high um, oil and gas um, export revenue, um, and then when that revenue has has fallen, you know the system didn't have any buffers in place that that provided uh, sort of that could absorb that that shock. Um, on the other side, um, you could consider an economy like the UAE. Um, Which has diversified in a place like Dubai. You have, you know, a thriving services logistics business. Um, You have other examples uh, of of reasonably successful diversification. I mean, Russia is um, under pressure in some respects today, um, but it's actually weathered the storm uh, pretty well over the last few years. I mean, it it built up a buffer of of savings that it could use to, um, to, to you know, when the when the oil price came down in, in, in 2014. Um, they've introduced some important reforms. You know, a good example would be the fiscal rule um, that now, you know, forces the uh, administration to 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 save uh, when the oil price is, is above a certain level. Um, so those kinds of things have enabled some countries to weather the storm uh, much better, much better than others.
0: One of the things that we started looking at as well when The sort of extreme oil price fluctuations earlier uh, in the decade and late last decade um, was some of the reform efforts that were announced by different countries. I think the most notable is obviously Saudi Vision 2030 and the kind of economic reform uh, and energy sector reforms that were announced not only there, but in, in, other, in other countries as well. Have you found that, um, and maybe it's most pronounced on the subsidy side, because I think that's something you've been tracking for the duration of, uh, of this, uh, this, uh, that sort of time period, um, have you found that people are following through on the reforms that are announced, or are they, uh, are they more uh, sort of notional or aspirational, and they kind of wax or wane when prices go back up again?
1: After the after the the fall in the oil price in in 2014, you know, there were pricing reforms uh, for a range of uh, of commodities, including um, oil products, natural gas, water, um, in many countries uh, in the Middle East. Um, that's been true for some years in in countries like Iran. Um, it was much less common in the GCC countries, and that was a a major change in 2015 2016. Um, There's still quite a long way to go. Um, with many of these these pricing reforms, um, the aims are there they're written into the strategy documents um, the timelines for some of these reforms um, has um, has been pushed back somewhat um, and and clearly with the oil price above where it where it has been, um, you can imagine that some of those pressures for reform um, might be lessened in the future and in a sense that's the that's always the challenge because the urgency of reform comes at a time when the means are at the lowest, um, and then when you have the the finances available to support reform, you know that's when the oil price might is is higher, and you, you, all of a sudden the pressure seems to be off. Yeah. Um, but that's it. managing that that in a sense that slightly contradictory backdrop is, is one of the big challenges for many of these economies.
0: Yeah, one of the last things I wanted to ask you about is the the sort of low carbon aspect of this. We see in many countries in our own work. Um, there are a, a variety of imperatives that cause different countries to implement policies that will help them to grow the renewable or highly efficient portions of their economy, and some of them have to do with air pollution, and some of them have to do with um, a, a desire to you know, have greater energy access or just a, a larger share of renewables. Um, to displace as you said i think you know in in particular the role that natural gas and renewables can play in oil oil oil-fired power generation in places like um, saudi arabia the the question though is do do you think that these countries that are that see so much revenue coming from hydrocarbon development do you see them really taking on low carbon or clean energy technology as a competitive economic enterprise, do they really see that as a a potential new strategic frontier for themselves? Or is this still really along the lines of just trying to create a more diversified um, energy base for domestic consumption?
1: What we've tried to emphasize in in the analysis, particularly for the Middle East, is that there's a big opportunity there for cost-effective deployment of solar. and we take the example of demand for, for cooling demand for cooling is rising very strongly across much of the Middle East and that creates um, a big you know peak load of on the on the system um, in the summer but particularly during the day in the summer um, that's a very good match for your solar output um, at the moment those peaks are typically met by burning uh, crude um, you know with that, the opportunity cost of that crude is, um, is, is high enough to, to more than justify a, a very significant rollout of, of solar power, so for, for us that's, that's really low-hanging fruit when it comes to um, taking advantage of, of this very, uh, very strong solar potential.
0: Well, Tim, that's about all the time we have for today. But I just wanted to say it's a really important report. I hope that the listeners of the Energy 360 podcast will go ahead and take a look. Um, You guys have not only released the report, but you also have a webinar um, that's on your website that's helpful for understanding some of what's in it. Um, And I just want to say thanks again for coming and spending some time with us to talk about it.
1: That's a great pleasure. Many thanks to you.
0: Again, I'm uh, Sarah Ladislaw with the CSIS Energy and National Security Program, and thanks for listening to Energy 360.